0: Welcome to the Refuge Recovery Podcast. Refuge Recovery is a worldwide community of people who are using the practices of mindfulness, compassion, forgiveness, and generosity to heal the pain and suffering that addiction has caused in our lives and the lives of our loved ones. This podcast is for all those interested in and all those already practicing Refuge Recovery to find freedom from addiction of all kinds. To support this podcast and your Refuge Recovery, please donate using the link in the show notes.
1: Welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, we'll go ahead and get started. I'm talking now. This is um, the monthly teacher led offering from Refuge Recovery World Services. This is not a refuge recovery meeting. I am going to lead a meditation and give a Dharma talk and um, take some questions. Um, as you probably know, refuge recovery meetings are peer-led. Nobody should be freestyling meditations or giving lectures <laughs> or uh, answering or doing Q and A's in refuge meetings. Uh, when I created refuge, I always felt that there should be three distinct parts of the um, of the movement of the of the. Um, of the offering and you know one should be peer led meetings where there's no leaders it's all volunteer based no dharma teachers in the meetings or dharma teachers are welcome to come to our meetings but not be dharma teachers in the meetings <laughs> that we're all peers when we're in meetings peer support
2: um,
1: and then i also feel and you know part of why i'm offering this through world services is that there's definitely a place for a relationship with teachers of listening to Dharma lectures, of getting guidance from teachers who uh, have been at it for for longer than we have and have experienced the Dharma. And then the third aspect of Refuge Recovery World Services and and the intention is to also be able to offer professional treatment. Um, So peer-led meetings, teacher-led retreats and and teachings and um, professional addiction treatment services most of us, uh, and and for the most part, the organization is is primarily focused on building the infrastructure for the peer-led meetings. And this is um, really the only thing we're doing right now to do some Refuge Recovery teacher-led things. I I was doing it every week last year. This year, I'm just going to do it once a month for the the teacher-led first Thursdays. We'll also have, and towards the end, I'll let you know that we do have some retreat, Refuge Recovery retreats coming up. One at the end of this year, one early next year, starting to schedule some opportunities for people to come and and practice silent meditation retreats. It's part of our program. It's heavily encouraged, suggested as part of our recovery to do meditation retreat practice. So welcome, and again, if you're looking for a meeting, That's not what you have found tonight, (laughs) Um, but I hope you enjoy this, and I hope you uh, you know find some meetings when you're looking for this. The topic for tonight is mindfulness, the seventh factor of our eightfold path, our eight factors. The the buddha's teachings on how to end suffering that we are utilizing to how to end the suffering of addiction and and all of the suffering that goes beyond just our addictive tendencies mindfulness is broken down into four different uh, what we call foundations four different levels of our human experience uh, and the first foundation, and I think I'm going to, I'll give a quick overview, but I think I'm going to primarily focus on the first foundation tonight. And then next month I'll do second foundation. Um, I think I'm going to do one foundation at a time so that we can really unpack and discuss because there's a lot to these teachings and to these practices of the four foundations of mindfulness. The first foundation in in simple, um, Is the category of mindfulness of the body of our human physical corporal form this this um this human body that we have bringing mindfulness present time awareness to every aspect of the body the second foundation is identifying the feeling tone as we're paying attention to what's happening moment to moment We begin to bring mindfulness to what is perceived as pleasant, what is perceived as unpleasant, what is perceived as neutral. The third foundation is what's happening in your mind. Um, In some ways, we start with learning to ignore our minds, and I'm going to talk about that tonight, and the necessity and the the, um, relief that we get from breaking our addiction to thinking. And... Um, but then the third foundation, you know, the Buddha says, okay, first break your addiction to your mind and then learn to observe, learn to be mindful of what's arising and passing through your consciousness, what thoughts, what plans, what memories, what, uh, mind states, what moods, all of the emotions are also born as thoughts. And we bring mindfulness to the mental, emotional, uh, process and content of our minds in the third foundation the fourth foundation is what's called the mindfulness of the truth of the dhamma is the buddhist word but that's where we say like okay i'm being mindful and what i'm experiencing is i'm mindful of the four noble truths i'm mindful of suffering right now this feels like suffering i'm mindful of the cause of suffering there's craving present that's creating suffering for me or attachment or aversion Mindfulness of not suffering—the third noble truth. So, uh, in the fourth foundation, uh, there's a lot of lists here. So, bear with me. The more you hear this, the more you read this, the more it won't just sound like gobbledygook Buddhist lists, but you'll actually go like, "Oh, okay, I see how these all connect." So, in the fourth foundation, the Buddha says, "Be mindful of the four noble truths. Be mindful of the five hindrances. Be mindful of." the seven uh, factors of awakening, be mindful of all six sense gates. Be mind- And so there's all these lists. Anyways, when we get there in a few weeks, we will start to talk about uh, what it means to, to do mindfulness on the fourth foundation where we're completely inclusive, every aspect of us, our emotions, our sensations, our thoughts, our feelings, our perceptions, everything included in present time, non-judgmental awareness. But for tonight, we will focus on the first foundation of mindfulness. As you probably are aware, if you're new to refuge or when you were new to refuge, the initial encouragement is to start practicing mindfulness of the breath let that be the initial practice, the initial instruction, and then begin to alternate that initial mindfulness of breathing with also forgiveness meditation practice. That's what we suggest. So in the Buddha's teaching, so I'm going to go. I'm going to do a little overview, and then I'll do a guided meditation. And I really hope that this actually serves. You know, I I didn't go into a lot of detail about all of the Buddha's uh, teachings on the four foundations in the Refuge Recovery book. I intentionally left it a little bit general, just giving the uh, instructions that I felt like were good for uh, kind of introductory level. I left out some of the more technical, uh, intellectual kind of uh, aspects of the teaching. hear my daughter yelling at me through the door (laughs) so the first foundation of mindfulness the body present time non-judgmental awareness of your body and I want to invite you right now if you're not already be mindful what's happening in your body right now feel your body as I explain this, feel your body sitting there in the chair, feel the sensations created. You don't have to close your eyes to be mindful, just hear, uh, receiving, uh, listening, but directing mindfulness to the body. Where do you feel sensation? Uh, As your feet are on the ground, as your hands are doing whatever they're doing, resting. As your breath comes and goes, feel the sensations created by the breath. First foundation of mindfulness is there's all of these sensations happening, always. (laughs) And we use the breath. The Buddha's initial meditation instructions was, he says, for formal training on this first foundation, find a place to sit, sit down, establish mindfulness, present time awareness, and then direct your attention to the sensations that the breath is creating. He says, breathing in, one knows I breathe in breathing out one knows I breathe out so this becomes a core practice you've probably been doing it for a while maybe some of you are are pretty new but most of you have already been doing this you've been coming to the meetings you're hearing the instructions maybe you've been practicing Buddhism for a long time already so part of the um question I feel like is like okay well why do we do this and so Partially answering that for yourself, how are you benefiting so far from mindfulness of your breath? How is it serving you? How is it helping? What is the direct experience of putting your attention on the sensations that the breath creates? I know when I first meditated and this was the first instruction that I got um, and I thought, how's this going to help me? But then when I did it, I saw pretty immediately one of the functions of mindfulness of breathing is that it allows me to ignore my mind for a minute, to disengage from the fears and hopes and cravings and aversions and self-centered judgments. All of that stuff is still there, but it's in the background when we really bring our attention to the breath. And so for us as addicts, When we have this addict mind that is, you know, to be dramatic, trying to kill us, (laughs) you know, this addict mind that is giving us bad advice and saying, you should act out, you should drink, you should use, you should avoid, manipulate, and escape the unpleasant experiences that are happening in your life, right? Doesn't your mind often tell you that? sort of what everybody's mind tells us, tells them, but us as addicts we have an extreme, a more extreme uh, or like a louder craving for avoidance. I think that that's one of the definitions of, of addictive behavior. So we use the breath as an anchor to the body to what's happening right now physically. The breath is coming, the breath is going. And when we are truly doing that, we are disengaging from the mind. Now, of course, we're not trying to stop the mind, right? We're not trying to stop the third foundation, mental proliferation. We're just trying to redirect our attention, bring mindfulness into the present, to the breath, to what's happening right now physically. So there's, for most, an immediate sense of relief and a quality of intervention that's happening. A quality of intentionally intervening between the addictive thought process and uh, disengaging and coming into the body. Just one breath, just a half a breath, breathing in, breathing out not obeying the mind that's saying think about this go do that just here come back to the breath over and over all of mindfulness and is and has the goal and for us to see more clearly to understand three things and the breath can you know even this simple initial instruction can teach us these three transformative, what we call uh, insights. One is everything is impermanent, right? You know that, but when you're paying attention to your breath, and it's you know it's entering, sustaining, exiting, entering, you start to see, oh, every, the breath is impermanent. No to moments of the breath have the exact same sensation. It's constantly changing In permanence, We become intimate with it. We become awake to impermanence through the impermanent nature of the sensations that the breath creates with every inhale and every exhale. The second insight that even just the breath itself is simple initial instruction can teach us is there's no, because of the reality of the impermanence, there is nothing reliable or nothing, uh, no sensual experience that will really lead to satisfaction. That, that the breath, it's, it's too transient, it's coming and going. It's not reliable source of happiness. And we all know this from our attempts to create happiness by chasing pleasure and running from pain. And that no amount of drugs, no amount of sex, no amount of money, no amount of anything is reliable as a source of happiness. And so the breath itself starts to teach us the unreliable, the impermanent nature of things. And the last uh, insight, these called called the three characteristics, is that uh, a lot of what's happening is not personal, is not self, is not in our control, and uh, is not your fault. So the fact that your body breathes, that all of our bodies breathe, all by themselves—it's impersonal. It's not. It's not. You're not breathing. You're not telling your lungs, "Hey, breathe in. Hey, breathe out." hey, breathe in, hey, breathe out. The body just breathes all by itself. Now, this was such a huge, I don't, maybe it seems simple to you. To me, it was so beneficial and transformative to wake up to that this human experience is just happening. The body is breathing, the heart is beating. And then when I started to apply that to my mind, my mind is just thinking, just like the human lungs breathe all by themselves, just like the heart beats all by itself, just like the uh, nervous system and the digestive system in this human body are. Uh, I think that the medical or scientific term is autonomic, right? Automatic <laughs> happens all by itself, autonomic breathing, heart beating, all of these systems of the body and the mind thinks all by itself. Now, when we really wake up to that, it's so much relief to not continue taking the mind so personally. And you see it because as we're about to do, you meditate on the breath, meditate on the body, and the mind keeps thinking and keeps saying, "Hey." yo, I know you're meditating, but let's think about some shit. Let's make some plans. Let's rehash some resentments. Like whatever your mind does when you're, you know, like you say, I'm going to pay attention to the breath. And your mind says, sure you are. I'm going to (laughs) think. Because it's what the mind does. It's like, we take it so personal. And the breath awareness practice, I hope this makes sense. Makes sense to me. That seeing how impersonal. The the breath is happening all by itself. It's not who I am. It's not, I'm not making it happen. And applying that to emotions and applying that to thoughts, that insight that we get from this first foundation of mindfulness can be a game changer. So I'm going to do a meditation in a moment. The first foundation goes on from mindfulness of the breath to mindfulness that in this body, there are four elements: present time, non-judgmental awareness of, and again, right now as you're sitting here listening to this, the earth element is experienced in that contact with the chair, the heaviness, the that uh, contact sensation. The air element, of course, is experienced with each breath. The uh, heat element, as with the temperature, right now, like. Uh, How are you? Are you warm? Are you cool? It's um, probably almost 99 degrees inside you, right? So experiencing that 98.5 normal body temperature, fucking hot and bringing mindfulness to like, oh, wow, like this body is heat. This body is earth, air, uh, water, fire, heat. The water element experience with saliva, with the feeling of the heart beating with the, every time we blink and it uh, lubricates the eyeball, all of that is fluid. And I don't know what the exact statistic is, but I think it's close to 80% of the body is water. saline, Is salt water, Um, the blood and and all of the, you know, flesh. And it's, I think it's 78, but I feel like it's close. You can round it up. It's like almost 80% of us is liquid, even though we feel so solid. So the Buddha says, Be mindful of this, of the four elements. And he says, Investigate your body as it is. And he makes a list of 32 parts. He says, Be mindful that in this human body, there is skin, there is hair, there is bones, there are muscles, there are all of these different organs, um, you know, uh, liver and spleen and intestines and stomach and bladder and colon and you know it's it's almost like a a mindfulness of human anatomy and so if you know anatomy if you've you know studied any anatomy he only does 32 a list of 32 but that we can actually meditate on our fingernails and our skin and our teeth um, and that there's blood and that there's Uh, saliva and that there's, you know, this body has all of these different parts to it. Then lastly, in the first foundation, all of this is still just first foundation of mindfulness. He says, also you can meditate on the fact that this body is impermanent. We see impermanence with the breath coming and going. He says, now apply this to your whole body and reflect on death and reflect on this body as a corpse. Everything's impermanent. This body is impermanent. And there's a whole visualization in the first foundation that says, imagine a dead body and reflect on how that body, the four elements start to disintegrate and the bones start to uh, fall apart. And, and reflect that this body that you're in, that you're mindful of, that's breathing, that's having its feelings and. Will at some point be dead. We're not exempt from this uh, impermanence. that The body itself is impermanent. Not just what we experience, but the vessel, the experience that which we experience the world through this physical form is impermanent. Everything is impermanent. I don't know if you've noticed, but I put the um, these. In the self-guided part of the refuge recovery book, I put the um, corpse and the, um, but I didn't make meditation scripts for them because I was, I think maybe some people have made meditation scripts for them over the years. Uh, But I was a little hesitant for like somebody coming in brand new to a refuge meeting be like, we're going to meditate on the decaying corpse. (laughs) It's an important part of the Buddha's teaching, but we don't have to start there, right? We can start with just mindfulness of the breath. Coming and going, breathing in. Know you're breathing. Present time, non-judgmental, investigative, kind awareness of our bodies, and we do it in a formal way when we're sitting. And then at the end of the sitting instructions, the Buddha says, "Now bring this awareness." into walking, he says, when you're walking, be mindful of each footstep. Going forward, be mindful, I'm walking. How often when we're walking, are we lost in our head, thinking about where we're going in the past, in the future? He says, now bring your full attention to each footstep. Mindfulness of movement. Uh, many of you probably do yoga practice, and you know, yoga is that formal mindfulness of movement practice. Um, And so this is encouraged. Bring mindfulness into all of our activities, what your body is doing. And so if you're driving, mindful of driving feels like this. My hands are on the wheel. I'm looking in the mirror. I'm shifting gears. As a mindfulness meditation, uh, uh, integration into all of our activities. It says standing, be mindful of standing, walking, sitting, laying down and all of the activities that there's nothing that your body is doing, including sex or masturbation or whatever it is, that's not part of your mindfulness practice rather than uh, this kind of disengaged. And there's so many people have such body shame and feel like the body hasn't been safe because of trauma. The invitation of mindfulness is to re-inhabit to fully inhabit our physical form with kindness, with our full attention, with whatever we're doing, even pooping, right? Rather than reading the book or looking at the phone or something when you're on the toilet, just mindfulness. I once went and saw the Vietnamese Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh give a lecture. I think we were in Pasadena at some big uh, theater. And Seriously, like his Dharma talk for like 40 minutes was on pooping. And just the the opportunity, mindfulness of of taking a shit mindfully. And and all of the, you know, the body awareness and then the unpleasantness of the smell, all of our judgments, all of our fears, all of our relationships with our buttholes, you know, like the, the embarrassment. This is mindfulness. All of it is mindfulness, not just I'm sitting here like a statue, but I'm bringing awareness into my body as much as I can in all of the activities of this physical form. And we learn to do that through the sitting with the mindfulness of the breath, the formal training becomes integrated. I hope that makes sense. Does it make sense? What I'm saying, I hope it does. Okay, first foundation, Uh, let's do a meditation. So find a way to sit and I'll lead some instructions. I'll take us through breath, body, four elements, parts. Maybe we'll even throw a little corpse in there. So find a way to sit and when you're ready, Allow your uh, eyes to be closed. Take a moment to release any unnecessary tension your body may be holding. Breathing out, release, soften. Bring an attitude of friendliness, of kindness, acceptance. Feel your body here, sitting. Know that you're in the sitting posture. Feel the contact with the chair. Feel how your hands are resting. Let the breath come and go. It's own rhythm, no need to take deep breaths, no need to hold your breath or manipulate it, just let the body breathe. Letting everything else be in the background, the minds, thoughts, other sense doors of hearing and seeing smelling and tasting. That all be in the background and bring the foreground of attention the body sitting and breathing. Stationing the mindfulness right at the nostrils or the belly. Stationing the attention in one place and receiving the breath as it enters and exits. And investigate the impermanent nature. See how the sensations are constantly changing. The temperature, the texture. Tune in to the impermanent nature of the breath. How is it changing? Investigate it. No breath is satisfactory, constantly needing to take the next breath. No breath is reliable. We can't rely on the last breath. It's this one right here that is keeping us alive. begin to understand that this being human with a body that's breathing and feeling and thinking not that personal, just what the body does all by itself, breathing in, breathing out all by itself thinking craving. it's not your fault Practice gives us the needed intervention, needed insight into how the mind works So no longer obey it, redirecting the attention over and over to the breath. Bring curiosity to the process. I say investigate. Imagine that this is brand new rather than taking the breath for granted. Interest to it. How does it enter the nostrils and exit? The sensation of the clothing on your skin as the chest expands and contracts as the belly rises and falls. Returning to the body each time you get involved in thinking about future or past. You can just name that as thinking, remembering, planning. Re-establishing mindfulness in the body, feeling the contact with the chair, the cushion. Feel your hands resting in your lap. mindfulness, awareness to the hands, to the feet. What sensations are present in your hands and feet? What sensations are present in your legs and your arms? In the trunk of the body, the buttocks, genitals, belly, chest, back, shoulders, head, face. Remember to soften and remember to be kind, to be friendly towards this body that carries us around Sometimes we have to do a lot of forgiveness for our bodies. This body that craves pleasure, that hates pain. Bring some awareness to the four elements. Can you? The air element, we're already paying attention to with the breath. Tune into the heat, the temperature. Mindfulness of the water element, saliva in your mouth. Heartbeating. awareness of the earth element. Solidity. The carbon. The contact. bones continuing to feel the breath coming and going and being here, present as much as possible investigating the parts of the body your skin, awareness of skin fingernails teeth hair and the skeleton itself, bones, muscles, ligaments and tendons, organs. Has his body very much alive here and now, feeling the sensations, the breath, the heartbeat, reflecting on the corpse. These physical bodies die, decay, the impermanence of the body. Leads to appreciation of each breath. Buddha encourages. Reflection on the many stages of decay of the body, freshly dead, dead for some time, where the skin and flesh is decaying, until nothing remains but a skeleton. And that even that skeleton over time crumbles. Body is not our refuge. It is our vessel, it's our vehicle in this lifetime. One teaching that Buddha says, remember that this body is subject to sickness and aging and death. Due to impermanence, we will be separated from everything that we love eventually. And our only true possession is our actions, our karma, we truly own. It's how we behave, how we respond. A couple more minutes just being with your breath. Is there something new that you've never noticed before about this breath? things are impermanent. The body reveals impermanence to us as we bring mindfulness to it. All things are unreliable. there's no refuge and sense pleasures. there's no refuge outside of ourselves. Much of what's happening in the mind and body are quite impersonal, not your fault, not self. Just a body with a nervous system. Body that remembers the wounds we've experienced. When you're ready, allowing your eyes to be open, bringing your attention back. Taking a moment to move however feels good. Stretch if you care to or keep meditating if you care to. Up to you. Okay. First foundation of mindfulness is an intervention. It will change everything. And it is also, I believe, like it's so healing to finally give ourselves this kind of attention rather than looking for attention from other people outside of ourselves. There's something about this internal awareness of the body that in my experience has been so incredibly healing um, in my relationship with myself. It's like, it's a trauma resolution to be mindful of our own sensations and emotions and and, and experience in the body. I'll open to Q&A in a moment. You know, one of the things that I regret that we're not really so able to do in refuge meetings, although we could probably figure it out, um, that we do a lot on on retreat, and I hope you all come to retreat at some point, um, is walking meditation. Walking meditation, mindfulness of each step. There's something about it that has been so central in my uh, recovery, so central in my healing, I think. And maybe some of you've heard me talk about this before. A few years ago, I'm also trained in psychology. A few years ago, I was getting trained in um, EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing. And as I learned that and learned that um, Shapiro's core philosophy was that it was bilateral attention while recalling adverse life experiences or traumas um, that was healing, that was moving, you know, this is a kind of psych teaching that, you know, we hold those traumas in our bodies and we hold them in our uh, amygdala. And that something about bilateral attention helps shift them into our neocortex. And when I learned that, I was like, oh shit, this is what I've been doing in meditation for the last 30 years. Bilateral attention, right, left, right, left with each footstep, in walking meditation, you know, not sitting there going back and forth with the eyes thing, which is good. You know, many of you have probably experienced EMDR. It's a, it's a useful technique. Um, But there's, you know, mindfulness as a trauma resolution, as a addictive uh, intervention. One of the ways that we do that is bring it into activities and especially that activity of walking and bringing your attention back and forth from your right foot to your left foot, from your right foot to your left foot, which is, you know, bringing bilateral attention. And also often, you know, in my experience, walking uh, and, and on retreat, you know, often a lot of difficult memories are coming up on retreat. A lot of, um, and so walking with those difficult memories rather than pushing them away, rather than quickly coming back to the breath, letting those thoughts and feelings be there and taking them for a walk, left, right, left, right. So it'd be interesting for us to try to do a refuge recovery meeting where rather than sitting, we say like, okay, now we're going to walk around the room in circles for the next 20 minutes. (laughs) It would be probably, you know, if it's my friends, they might start slam dancing. I don't know, but (laughs) it would be interesting to try to do uh, some walking practice at some point as part of a meeting of saying like, we're going to sit for 10 minutes and then we're going to do some walking back and forth as part of our meditation practice, as part of our core skills that we're developing uh, in recovery. So I'll leave it there and open it up to questions, comments, clarifications about this first foundation of mindfulness. As you see, it's hard to talk about it without opening to the third, the mind and the feeling tones, what's pleasant. But next month, we'll talk about the second foundation. And the following month, we'll talk about the third foundation. And that way we can take our time um, doing mindfulness for the next few months together. <laughs> I got a direct mes- message that says, uh, and I won't out who said it since it's private. It says, uh, The direct message says, Do I have to be mindful of every shit to reach enlightenment? Yes, every shit. Or like, just start with like every other shit, and then you know, like try to improve, you know, on, on mindfulness of shitting. And I know it's a little crude and a little gross, but of course, it is totally every aspect of our body. We have these bodies with a digestive system and an elimination system, and and it's part of our healing to become more embodied and to become more friendly. Um, you know, it's it's a it's a practice and I know that that's a half half joke but it's not that we have to be mindful in order to get enlightened um, but mindfulness will become something that is integrated into every aspect of our life where there's nothing outside of it even the stuff that you're ashamed of being mindful of that shame being mindful of embarrassment being mindful of all of that stuff around our bodies and Uh, on our emotions so that it's not like I just sit and pay attention to my breath and that's mindfulness and everything else is mindless we want to bring this quality of attention and it takes a while you know for sure for me it took years of feeling like I was hardly ever present except for when I started to you know and then meditating feeling oh I'm a little bit more present in my day-to-day I'm a little bit more present in my day-to-day and you know we're also creating these neural pathways of presence yeah, and it takes it takes some time. If you have a question you can raise your hand I see one from Rachel go ahead Rachel unmute yourself and jump in.
2: Hi
3: um, so it's not really a question more of like a comment I guess um I was actually journaling about this idea earlier um, in a way I guess so I've been in recovery for nine and a half months, um, and when I went to treatment, um, one of the first things that everybody asked me was, "You know, what are you looking for?" Um, and I, I've shared this with you in uh, against the stream meeting a while back, but um, I've had a lot of like different traumas that are identifiable in my life, um, and I think that you know, one of the answers that I gave them was that I wanted this sense of control over my life because it had gotten to the point where I felt like, you know, I found out about a trauma that had happened to me when I was a kid at age 28. And um, I kind of spiraled after that. And it felt like I started questioning every move in my life. Like, did I make this question under the influence of this trauma that happened that I didn't even know about? And I just felt really out of control Um, and so that was, you know, one of the first things that I told them that I wanted when I went to treatment, I had no idea what that meant. I didn't know what I wanted control over. I just wanted a sense of control because I felt out of control, which is ironic because I was using drugs to disassociate and I was completely out of control. But, um, I was thinking earlier about how, you know, mindfulness, in a way, has kind of given me that sense of control over my decisions. Um, I've been practicing for about two and a half years, so not that long, but long enough that I noticed a difference. And I think that it kind of gives me, like, time, it gives me a pause in between when something happens um, that's out of my control, and the thing that I can control my reaction to it. Um, And so, yeah, I guess I was kind of thinking about how mindfulness has given me this sense of control and the idea of interception. And then at the same time, it's allowed me to kind of accept the things that aren't in my control. Um, so I just was, I didn't, I don't know. I just wanted to share that. Cause it kind of, you know, I was, I was literally writing about this maybe four hours ago. So thank you.
1: No, I, I love that. The one, um, comment that I'll make and maybe it's just semantics, Rachel, but I'd encourage you to consider replacing um, control with influence. I wanna have, you know, and I, I say that out of my own experience of uh, even long-term recovery and long-term meditation practice is that sometimes I totally know what to do, like let go <laughs> or forgive, right? Like I but I, I don't quite have control over my mind to make it let go or to, I don't, to res, you know, like we know you read a couple Dharma books, you go to a few meetings, you know what to do, <laughs> but we don't quite have that internal control. We don't have full, but we, the more we do it, the more influence we have over exactly what you're saying, I've related so much, how do we respond? Not much control over what happens, In the world or in our lives you know not a lot of ability but we have a lot of ability to uh influence our response and you know influencing our response towards more kindness and more compassion and more acceptance and more forgiveness um so anyways try that on if you want you know to try on that sort of like maybe i can't control totally how i respond but i'm learning to influence it a bit more Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah, it's, I've noticed like a huge difference in my life since I've, because of that. I just feel more happy, stable, at peace, content. I think content is like, I used to think that happy was the opposite of depressed, but now I'm like, no, it's contentment,
1: (laughs) so. Great, nice to see you.
3: Good to see you too.
4: Uh,
1: Mark, go ahead and jump in.
4: Yeah, no, hello, Sangha. I really appreciate uh, the lecture or the, the Dharma talk. I know it was a couple of years ago, probably, and maybe more than once. It, um, I remember a, a Dharma talk where you said, you don't have to mind your mind. And we've retouched this thing uh, a lot lately um, about how we don't really have control of our mind. Like you said, you know, it's going on just like our breathing and other things like that. And um, it's been nice becoming aware. It seems so simple, but when you're not thinking that way, it's not so simple if you're kind of walking around asleep as opposed to being awoken to that. Um, catching those thoughts creeping in, you know, uh, lo- heard a lot of addicts uh, share about, you know, my mind's out to kill me, your mind's out to kill you, you know, which in fact, if you think about some of the thoughts, especially fully in addiction, our mind is at, actually... Telling us things to do to ourselves that will kill us, you know? And so it's been really nice um, from the very beginning where you I remember you talking about not having to mind our mind, catching my my mind, telling me things that aren't true or that are negative or trying to bring me back to a place that I'm not at anymore. By being mindful, you know, I can catch myself and say, hey, those things aren't happening to me now. Those are things that happened in the past. Right now. This is what's happening. I'm I'm doing this. I'm here. Things are different. Things have changed, and so it's been very uh, very liberating. So I just want to thank you for uh, these talks because it's it's nice to be catching my mind trying to kill me. So thank you.
1: Awesome. Thanks, Mark. Nice to see you. Hope go ahead and jump in.
4: Um. Yes. Yeah, thank
3: you. I guess this is kind of off topic, but. What is your opinion on like medically assisted um, treatment for recovery?
1: Um, my opinion is um, abstinence is, you know, the sort of goal. Of um, certainly, it's what we're doing in refuge. We're abstinence based. Medically assisted detoxes are really helpful for people rather than cold turkey. So I'm all for that kind of like uh, tapering thing. And then I got to say, I you know, it depends on the individual. You know, if somebody's really committed to recovery, then my own view is they'll be able to taper and, you know, uh, become abstinent. If somebody is not really committed to recovery, then um, kind of long-term uh, replacements, medically assisted, uh, will save a lot of lives of people who will probably overdose, you know, if they don't. And the statistics are really clear that people who aren't, you know, ready to get so, you know, clean and and um, you know that the death rates are so high that I can't be against people, you know, like doing that, like for sure, like if it's going to save lives, great. I'm all, you know, I want to support survival <laughs> of addicts. Um, but of course, you know, myself and, you know, some because we know that abstinence is actually possible. And that however difficult it is to break through the, the cycle of addiction and craving and 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 detoxing. We can do it, right? Like there's a hundred people here tonight who are all doing it. And there's thousands of people and millions of people who are doing it. So I don't think that long-term maintenance and medically assisted is necessary for people who are really going to get on the meditation, get to the meetings, do the inventories. If you do this thing, you won't need to stay on long-term medical assist, you know. On, on meds, on uh, you know, detox. You know, what what, are, what were meant to be detox meds, but have become maintenance meds. Uh, that's my that's my feeling. So I don't know. I I hope I come across as actually um, not super clear about it, <laughs> because I'm not super clear about it. You know, like in certain circumstances, it seems appropriate. And of course I lean toward let's all get off of drugs altogether um and and live a life free from active addiction. Thank you. I hope that's makes sense. Yeah. Daniel, go ahead, jump in.
5: Yeah, I, I feel like um Kelsey had thrown something in the chat before I raised my hand, but you wanna to get to that before me, I, I'd be willing to wait.
1: Oh, sure, yeah, no, I like this question. Um, it says that I mentioned during the meditation that we cannot take refuge in our bodies because they are impermanent. But that confuses me because in recovery, we are trying to no longer take refuge in things outside of ourselves, right? Yes. Right. Um, And the body is a temporary refuge, you know, that, that was in the context of the corpse meditation and the, you know, we don't want to become too identified with like, this is who I am because this is going to (laughs) die. And from a Buddhist perspective, there's a karmic momentum that's going to continue beyond this material form. And so that's all that kind of instruction was just like totally it's inside of you. You know, one of the other things that I to balance that, like, okay, the body's not an ultimately a reliable refuge. But also the Buddha said, all of the dharma, all of the liberating insights like impermanence and unreliability and not self, the Buddha said, all of that will be revealed in this body. So the body is our teacher, the body is our uh, practice. The body is, um, you know, there's a lot of healing and awakening to do in this body and this body will get sick and it will get old and it will die. And especially our like attachments to staying young, you know, or the body staying thin or the body staying sexy or whatever. That's what I meant. Like, don't, don't get too, uh, attached to the body being the way you want it to be because it's going to, end up a corpse at some point, And uh, you'll be like, oh, shit, now what? <laughs> oh, so I hope that that makes sense. Not outside of ourselves, of course, um, but that there is parts of ourselves that are beyond this body. There's a karmic process uh, unfolding here that's not dependent on this physical form, is the Buddha's teachings.
3: Thank you, that's very helpful.
1: Welcome. Daniel,
3: go for it.
5: Yeah. Um, so I I can out myself. I'm I'm the enlightened. My question would the enlightened shit question. Um, I, I um, yeah. This, I, I have such a tr- such trouble with this. I mean, it it reminds me of you know Catholicism, which I grew up in, of like this like we have to be mindful of every moment or else or you know we won't reach enlightenment um, but it and it just like I have an aversion to it and, and probably because I have that aversion as you know I always remember as a child you know my parents talking about heaven like oh heaven's this place where the lion and the lamb will lay down together right and I and you'll live there forever and I just thought fuck I don't want to I don't want to live forever anywhere like let alone in this place that you're describing and um and so I think a I have an aversion to it you know and b like I also you know I'm fairly new to this um meditation and recovery um it's been about nine months um for both and um and like, I think of the walking, like my wife's always making fun of me. She's like, well, I thought you're supposed to be mindful walking. Every day I take two walks with my dog um, around the block. And what do I do? I put in headphones and, you know, usually listen to a pod. I'll listen to you, man. I'll listen to a podcast or something, you know? And, you know, but she she doesn't. She walks around and she's like, well, I thought you're supposed to be mindful, man. And I'm like, I'm just not there yet. I just feel like like right now I'm trying to just like take in a bunch of stuff. I view walks as like the time to like um yeah, learn learn about Buddhism and and um and recovery and things like that. So so yeah, I guess I guess my question is um you know, I, thanks for laughing and knowing that it was tongue in cheek. But like, like, I guess is that the goal then is just to be mindful of every waking moment, or or is it okay if we we skip a few moments um, ultimately?
1: Um, so. I love the question. I love the humility and the kind of the honesty of like I don't I'm not there yet like and so I think that that's the the first place to start is like that's totally okay. And um even though, you know, we can, Buddhism does give us a little bit of a perfection model of like enlightenment and you'll be mindful all of the time. And I feel like the question, a lot is coming from like, it's fucking hard to be mindful all of the time. I don't want to have to put all of this effort in all of the time, but here's the thing. The more you do it, the more you listen to those podcasts and you go to the meetings and you practice the meditation, actually mindfulness is going to become more and more natural to you. It's not going to be this effort, like I have to be perfect all of the time. Um, and I think it's interesting to look at where the question is coming from. It, you know, is there a part of, uh, of us that's like, well, I don't, because here's the equation that I, I kind of think, think the equation, which is like, um, if you wanna not suffer, then you're gonna to need to be mindful of what's happening so that you can respond to what's happening in a way that doesn't create suffering. Without mindfulness, we often automatically cling and create suffering or have aversion and create suffering. So you can be as happy as you want to be. You can be as free as you want or have the goal. You know, you might just say, are you aware there's that guy going around who uh, there's, and I think it's a popular podcast, 10% happier right? So there's all of these people who are just like, hey, I don't want to get enlightened. I just want to be 10%. I want to suffer 10% less. <laughs> and if that's the thing for you, cool, right? Like 10% less suffering, 10% more happiness. Cool. You know, the Buddha does have this thing of like, you can be a hundred percent happier. <laughs> you can be free. And if you train yourself in mindfulness and it won't be like so much effort forever, really, it becomes natural. It becomes, uh, it comes a way of being your mind becomes more and more present and it takes some maintenance of course but it's not going to be the sort of heavy uh, lifting of like you know and, and really looking at that like when you have that catholic catholic catholicism conditioning that's asking you to be like inhuman right it's asking you you know that's like being judgmental of your natural desires and your natural uh, inclinations, um, Buddhism's not, I I hope isn't doing that, right? Buddhism is saying like, it's going to feel great to be present and feel great to be kind and, and loving and forgiving. And this is what we all, you know, want. And does it take a lot of work? It does. And again, to that last part of your question, do you, is it okay to not do that? It's totally okay. You're only accountable to yourself in this process. It's just however much freedom each one of us want. Yeah, exactly. 10% happier. You know, and that's, you know, that was a catchy, you know, phrase that he used. Um, But personally, I'm not, I'm an an addict. I want it all. (laughs) I don't want 10% of anything. I want 100% of
2: everything,
1: (laughs) including freedom, including meditative uh, skills. so you'll find your own way with it. And thank thank you again for the question. Yeah, thank you. Okay, last two questions and we'll cut it off. Jose and then Maddie.
2: Hey, Noah. Jose here. Now for New Jersey. Things are going well over there. I like a lot the today's meditation. You discussed, also kind of like the, I feel like there was a lot of fundamental. Right, when we talk about the, the elements and the body scans, but I find myself with the challenge that when I am trying to track the breath, I find my mind even making the sound. I'm not telling my lungs, inhale, exhale, but I'm telling my mind. And that is, you know, and I can't, there is a difference from where. I am not doing that when I've been, you know, let's say I'm a, a long stress meditation. I sometimes get to that point that I can observe, you know, the, the body, right? But for the most part, it's always a struggle. How do I let that go of the, of course, of controlling it. I know you say, yeah, don't control it. But the reality of it is that I am controlling. Like, what would you advise for that?
1: Yeah, it's really okay. I mean, I think that what you're saying, Jose, is pretty common that there's something about when we bring our attention to it, it feels like, oh, now I'm controlling it, which is fine. Just keep, uh, you know, being mindful of that and um, try to relax a little bit more. Maybe not pay such uh, close attention to the nostrils. Maybe feel like the edge, like where's the edge of the breath sensations rather than the center. It might help you relax a little bit around it. Yeah. Um, But I would just not judge it and just allow, like, keep doing the mindfulness of breath, even if it feels like you're uh, influencing it a lot. That's okay, too. Yeah, don't. I mean, that is one of the problems with the instructions. Um, I, you know, don't want to make us feel like we're not doing it right. Like, there's no real wrong way to do it on some level. Just trying to be present with the body, breathing, and if it feels like you're influencing it or controlling it, that's okay. Don't worry about it. Good to
6: see you. Okay, Maddie, last one. Why, hello. Hi, Noah, nice to meet you. Um, This is my first little talk here. Um, I'll try to be brief. Um, Basically, a a question was jarred in me from a question earlier. And I was just wondering uh, your prerogative or refuge recoveries, in regards to plant medicine, specifically that when used in high ceremony. And uh, just real quick, I wanted to acknowledge uh, that I know a lot of the literature was written um, before a lot of scientific research has come out regarding a lot of therapies that are now becoming uh, popularized and mainstreamed. A lot of new research coming out in the last uh, few recent years here. But I guess uh, one word that kind of stuck out to me from the book uh, from your book was uh, the, the, the word recreational I think it was speaking in regards to people whom are involved with facilitating the meetings but um, yeah just uh, you know kind of was wondering where where we were at uh, on that thank you
1: welcome um, and nice to, nice to meet you and welcome to refuge and, and thanks for, uh, you know, and this is a pretty common, um, question. You know, I, I get asked this a lot and people are, you know, there's all of these studies now on psilocybin and MDMA and, you know, and how it works with trauma and, uh, ketamine for, uh, depression and, you know, and plant medicine, you know, ibogaine for, uh, um, you know, opiate withdrawal and, you know, ayahuasca, right? Like, it's, it's like, culturally, it's, it's the conversation. So, of course, in recovery, it's, it's the conversation, too. We are following a Buddhist path that um, encourages abstinence for everyone from everything, um, that believes that through our own efforts, Uh, in this lifetime through our own mind training, through a meditative discipline, you will be able to see reality clearly. You will be able to wake up to what's happening through your own efforts, through your own mind training without any external uh, substances, medicines, ceremonies, any of that, that the power of the Dharma, of mindfulness, of concentration, will wake you up to, to reality and will teach you to respond in a way that you no longer create suffering in how you respond to life on life's terms, to reality as it is, to the world as it is. So I'm not totally answering your question, but we're practicing in a lineage and from this ancient teaching that um, believes that we don't need any of those external Medicines, ceremonies. That actually, all you need to heal, to recover, to wake up, to you know, is training your own mind. This eightfold path, these four noble truths, is enough. And so that's where I land. You know, 33 years sober, I land in like, am I a little bit interested in what would happen if I smoke some DMT or DDT or whatever that shit is? I'm a little bit interested in that. Like, I, you know, but what I'm more interested in is the freedom of being present moment to moment with, with, with life. So, you know, last thing I'll say is that I've known um, people in recovery who who I, I know, I know people in recovery that utilize some of those ceremonial plant medicines, not recreational, but ceremonial and also maintain abstinence from recreational drugs and alcohol I also know more than one people many people at this point now who thought that they were go that were in recovery practicing abstinence went off to do some ceremonies gradually started using recreational and 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 into kind of full-blown relapse even though I think that their intention of going into those sort of psychedelic plant-based ceremonies uh, was somewhat wholesome to go in but that I've seen a lot of people end up you know, in full-blown relapse after doing that. My feeling is for us as addicts, fucking dangerous, you know? Fucking dangerous for us to play with those things, even though they're not recreational, um, still uh, not, I, I personally wouldn't, wouldn't encourage it, um, but I also wouldn't judge it too much. It's everybody's own choice. Refuge is a abstinence-based program um, from recreational and ceremonial, uh, what we call intoxicant thank you welcome
6: wait follow-up question you've never done ayahuasca
1: i haven't i got sober in 88 it wasn't a thing yet i mean it was right it's an ancient thing but it wasn't in the culture i mean i took acid and mushrooms and mescaline and everything else lots and lots of times but i you know the the ayahuasca wasn't around right on wasn't around in my punk rock circles anyways (laughs)
6: Right on, thank you so much. I'll see you at the retreat, I'm so excited.
1: Awesome. So we'll end there and we'll end in the like, I hope a lot of you are coming out to the uh, Refuge Recovery Conference in June. I know that there's like um, about 40 tickets left if you're planning on coming, um, purchase a ticket. It's gonna be in Malibu, it's gonna be awesome. It's outdoor, socially distanced. We have a private beach we're gonna be able to use on some of the breaks, jump in the Pacific Ocean. Um, and we'll meditate together, and we'll connect, and we'll do some small groups, and there'll be some entertainment, but a lot of us have spent this whole year only connecting online on Zoom, so to actually be together with 100 or 150 people um, appropriately distanced and masked up and all of that stuff, uh, it's going to be great, so I hope a lot of you are coming to that. And I will leave it there for tonight, ending with the um, tradition that believes that there is merit, there is goodness that is gathered when we come together and practice the Buddha's teachings. And may we offer this merit outward in all directions, sharing with all beings, especially those suffering from addiction and addictive behaviors. Each one of us recover and together, may we create a positive change on this planet. Thank you all. Great to see you. And um, the third Thursday, I do not a Dharma talk and meditation, but just sort of a QA and a about refuge recovery stuff. So if you want to come and chat third Thursday, um, you can register on the website. Come to the retreat. What else? There's some new merch stuff on the retreat, men's and women's. Uh, sweatshirts and um, I think that they're unisex So, um, and, and hats and stuff. So check out the, the refuge site and um, if you're going to lots of meetings, check in with your meetings if they have group reps and if they don't have a group rep, encourage your, your meeting to have a secretary, have a, a business meeting and make sure that all of the refuge meetings have group reps, because this is what we need to do to create the infrastructure for refuge recovery, for the songa, for the meetings to have a voice in the democratic structure. Uh, Each meeting needs to elect a representative from that meeting to be the group representative. So please do that. If you have questions about that, join me Thursday after next at the World Services Q&A. And I'll see you guys. uh, Soon, I
0: hope. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Refuge Recovery Podcast. To learn more about our program of recovery and to connect with others on the Refuge Recovery path, visit our website, refugerecovery.org, where you will find information, meditations, and links to both in-person and online Refuge Recovery meetings. This podcast is brought to you by Refuge Recovery World Services, a nonprofit created to support our network of Refuge Recovery groups around the world.